Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 190. My name is Terry Frost, and this time around I'm doing movies that two movies that have absolutely nothing to do with each other. The first one is Jacques Ferdeur's 1935 French comedy, it's for Carnival in Flanders, and then I go to 1988 for an Oliver Stone film, which is a classic, and that is Talk Radio starring Alec Baldwin and the irrepressible Eric Bogosian. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and the show will start. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks, and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films, because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast, but nonetheless... That's the rule, more than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and leave feedback there and get updates. Or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through. This podcast may contain adult materials, so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over. Hi, how is everyone? Um, We're doing pretty good here for wintertime. The world's gone mad, as we all know. England is leaving the EU and something like $25 trillion has disappeared from the economy of the planet. I don't know where it went, but apparently it has. Um, The... Americans have something that resembles a chud running for president, cannibalistic human underground dwellers for those of you not familiar with genre films. And in here in Australia, our federal election is six days away, basically, and everybody's trying to scare everybody else into voting for them. So to quote C.J. Dennis, the world has got me snouted just a treat. Cruel fortune's dirty left has smote me soul, and all them joys in life I held so sweet are up a pole. Yep, things are going totally cray-cray around the planet, which is all the more reason to hunker down, stock up with food and drink, and watch a good film. And this time around, I have two good films. As I said, totally different, but I still like them both a lot. The first one is La Comesse Heretique, Carnival in Flanders, 1935 French comedy set in the 1600s, I think. And um, it's just a beautiful, joyous um, slyly bawdy film, which is a lot of fun to watch. And then we zip pan to 1988, an entirely different part of the world, an entirely different view of the world, for Oliver Stone's adaptation of Eric Bogosian's play Talk Radio, uh, which is a mind-blowingly good movie as well, and a tour de force effort by Eric Bogosian. So, uh, as usual, I'll start off with the things that are being watched. And as I recorded the last Martian Drive-In podcast early, there are a few movies I've watched since then. And by the way, if I start slurring my words more than usual, or I'm more irrational than usual, we can only blame the New Zealanders, because I have a very fine bottle here of dark ale. It's called called Stoke Dark, and it's from Nelson in New Zealand, so it's not terribly far away from my all-time favourite town in New Zealand, which of course is Whakatane. Um, it's not a bad little drop, but it may well um, impede my performance of this podcast. Hopefully not, but we'll see how we go. I'll try to take it nice and easy, maintain, look after myself, and not 
get, start slurring and telling everybody I love them. Okay, what have I been watching? I'll go in reverse order just for the fuck of it. Um, Van Helsing. I rewatched Stephen Summers' Van Helsing, which is as bad as I remembered it, even though it does have Australian actors all over it. Uh, of course, it has Richard Roxburgh in it. It also has David Wenham and Hugh Jackman. And it's uh, the CG has dated crazily badly. Um, the movie doesn't make any narrative sense. It's just all over the place bad. And really, um, I may well end up getting rid of my Blu-ray of this one, which I picked up for a ridiculously low price. It's not something I want to re-watch. I think I want to watch new things. I want to watch stuff like French comedies from 1935 for a while. Uh, I did watch something from the 1970s, which I enjoy a lot, which is Foxy Brown, the Pam Greer black exploitation movie, which is a lot of fun and ends up with a very nasty piece of revenge by Foxy Brown on the female gang leader, drug lord, um, who has treated her badly. I'm not going to spoil that one for people. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. Willie Hutch's theme song is very cool and the music's very cool. And Pam Greer is at her best in the role um shooting people shooting her brother played by antonio fargus in the earlobe for being an asshole um lots of stuff like that so it's um definitely if you haven't watched foxy brown watch it if you uh, haven't watched it for a while watch it again uh, i did pick up a couple of other black exploitation films that i watched picked them up very cheaply and it looks like they may be vhs transcriptions and they are the black gestapo and the black six now the black gestapo is basically about um, a kind of urban group who end up forming a black gestapo in the in the neighborhood of watts and treating everybody really badly and uh, they have a megalomaniacal leader who has his own compound with a swimming pool and one of their people kind of rebels against it and takes them down it's got to be seen to be believed to be honest with you it's just um over the top silliness and probably a cautionary tale of some fucked up kind uh the the black six is a little more interesting though it is kind of truncated and doesn't really end in a way that's at all satisfying uh it's basically about six uh vietnam vet black bikers and it's one of the few black biker movies who come back to one of their group's hometown because his brothers got killed by a bunch of white supremacists and things play out as you expect them to play out in that kind of a scenario and it's um the odd thing about it is it's all all of the black six are played by ex-football players so um they're all really really fit guys and uh if you have a look through the credits of the black six you'll see who they are and the credits on the movie also tell you which football team they played for which makes it kind of interesting and weird but um it was, it was fun to watch it was a lot more fun to watch than the black gestapo uh, then I watched something that I picked up on Blu-ray, which was Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, the amicus portmanteau film starring Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Donald Sutherland's in it, uh, Roy Castle, a bunch of other people. It's got those little kind of mini horror stories all linked together by a device of doc, uh, Dr. Terror uh, reading people's tarot cards in a train journey. It's kind of fun, and I found it a lot more scary the first time I saw it when I was very young in the late 1960s, maybe early 1970s. But I like having a copy of it on Blu-ray. I think it's one of the first of those portmanteau films which became increasingly dark 
and gory as Amicus proceeded into the 1970s and maybe as late as 1980 with that particular format of film. Uh, so it was good to watch and uh, I think it was Olive Films who put out the American Blu-ray release of it and it's worth having if you're interested in that kind of a flick. Then I saw a movie from about six years ago called The Losers which is um, you know, kind of an action flick based on a comic book of course which has a pretty damn good cast, and, and everybody in the cast kind of went on to good things. Uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan's in it. Uh, let's see who else. Zoe Saldana, Chris Evans, Idris Elba. Uh, Jason Patrick's in it playing the villain and um, playing it very, very strangely. It's not one of the best um, action films in the world, but it's a little bit of fun, and it's one that I was watching on Netflix as I was scrolling through that user-hostile Netflix menu that you have, of course. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed the film. I liked the um, chemistry between Zoe Saldana, Saldana uh, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan. They kind of play it really nicely. And Jeffrey Dean Morgan's one of those actors that looks like he should have been making movies in the 1950s and 1960s. He's got very much that kind of 1950s macho about him, unlike a lot of other actors in contemporary film. But, yeah, it was fun to rewatch that. The um, I did watch a political movie as well, and this is going to be talked about by Liz Travaskas and I next Thursday in our last talk on ABC Local Radio Darwin before Liz goes on maternity leave. And that is Primary Colours, the kind of Romana Clay movie about the Clinton ascendancy, the Bill Clinton ascendancy, not the Hillary Clinton particularly ascendancy, starring John Travolta, um... Emma Thompson. It also has Adrian Lester in it, um, Billy Bob Thornton, and Kathy Bates stealing the movie. She's a kind of emotional core of the movie, which makes it really interesting. And she's um, very good in the film as well. Got an Academy Award nomination for it, in fact. It holds up well. It works really well. Uh, it was directed by Mike Nichols from a script by Elaine May. And Nichols and May have been doing comedy together since the 1960s and, and this movie kind of brings it together the rapport between the writing and the directing is, is very good in this film and I enjoyed it a lot uh, I did see a small budget science fiction movie off Netflix and I'm trying to kind of find those and, and enjoy them called Synchronicity and I don't think it really works it's not sure of what it is uh, it doesn't always turn the small budget into a virtue the way some other films have and none of the actors are particularly good, so I'm not going to talk more about that. Uh, let's see. I did see a movie called Rock Island Trail from 1950, starring Forrest Tucker. It's about the start of the first railway line across the Mississippi. And I'm going to talk more about that in a future podcast, because I've got something in mind for that one, so I won't necessarily uh, talk about it now. But it was a little bit of fun. Then I watched Slaughter and Slaughter's Big Ripoff, um, two more black exploitation films starring Jim Brown. First one was Stella Stevens and Rip Torn in it. The second one doesn't have Stella Stevens and Rip Torn in it. Um, yeah, it's the kind of that low budget, not as good as it might have been if it was made by a studio, 1970s action flicks. Jim Brown can run fast, I can tell you that, um, in the movies. He just runs very fast. Of course, being an ex-football player, it's part of the job description. 
but they were really fun to rewatch and just to see what clothing people were wearing and the things people get get away with saying about race and stuff like that in the 1970s. I got them in a double pack, uh, Soul Cinema double pack DVD of Slaughter and Slaughter's Big Ripoff, and yeah, they're fun. I mean, that's kind of my the stuff I was watching just as I was a teenager. So I've got um, an irrational fondness for that particular genre and those kind of movies. So they were fun. I've talked about Slaughter in a previous podcast as well. But that's kind of all I've been watching, really. So I'm going to take a break now. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about Carnival in Flanders, the 1935 French um, comedy, period comedy almost, uh, directed by Jacques Ferdinand, who was Belgian. And it's just a hell of a lot of fun. Maybe I should have saved those leftover dreams. Funny, but here's that rainy And I laughed at the thought that it might turn out this way. Where is that worn out wish? My lover Dolores Gray singing Here's That Rainy Day and I'm going to tell you why I played that song a little later in the podcast. It does relate directly to the movie I'm about to talk about. So on to Carnival in Flanders. It's a 1935 French film filmed partly in Paris and partly in Bruges in um, Belgium and it uh, it was directed by Jacques Feder. It stars amongst other people. Uh, but somebody that I know, Dr. Zom, has a great fondness for, an actor called Alexander Darcy. Uh, the, but the star of the film is Françoise Rosset, who was also Fédère's wife from 1918 until his death in 1948. Um, André Alain playing the Burgermeister. Uh, Françoise Rosset plays the Burgermeister's wife. Jean Murat playing the Duke. Louis Javert playing a priest. 
Uh, Lynn Cleaver's playing La Poissonniere, the fish wife, and a number of other actors whose names probably don't mean a lot to us here 81 years later. But I'll read the plot from a very fine book I picked up when I was in New South Wales a few years ago, The Golden Age of French Cinema, 1929-1939, to by John W. Martin. It's kind of hard to find, but it's got a lot of useful stuff in it. Uh, so here's the plot as by Mr. Martin. The plot is set in the small peaceful town of Boom in Flanders in the early 17th century at a time when the region formed a part of the Spanish Empire. The city is thrown into panic by the news of an impending visit from a duke, the ambassador-general of Spain, and his military escort. Memories of the fierce Duke of Alba and the pillaging by his army many years ago make the town leaders cringe at the prospect. The burgomaster has decided to play dead. The women of Boom, led by his wife Cornelia, take the town's fate into their own hands, meeting the duke and his men and entertaining them with an elaborate banquet. In many cases, they also bestow upon the visiting soldiers the favour of their beds. The tactic succeeds admirably. The Spanish, charmed by such a warm welcome, leave the next day in peace, exempting the locale from taxes for the next year out of their gratitude. So that's basically it. It's a beautifully funny and charming film, and I like it very, very much. I'd heard about it, and I'd kind of started watching it a couple of years ago when I found a copy of it. But um, when I rewatched it, when successfully watched it uh, a couple of weeks ago, I thought, oh, this is just a hell of a lot of fun. For 10 years before Carnival of Flanders was made, Fader was trying to get the film made and, and not too successful about it. But in 1935, he did have a successful film called Pancho Mimosas, which is a very heavy drama, also uh, again starring um, Miss Rosé. And he, you know, the, it was a very kind of emotional film. It was very heavy. It was dramatic. And Fedor decided that he wanted to do something much lighter. The success of Petra Mimosas allowed him to make Carnival in Flanders, which was his kind of dream project and is widely believed to be his masterpiece. The film was well regarded at the time by most people, though, the Flemish weren't too happy about it, mostly because it showed Flemish men as cowardly characters. But nonetheless, it, did, it was widely regarded. In fact, it was the second film to ever be shown on television in England in 1938. A lot of people forget that there was television in the UK before World War II. And Carnival in Flanders was the second feature film ever shown on English television. And as America didn't have any television before the war, probably in the world. Fedor went all out to make this film. He could, All of the costumes are perfect. It's almost like they time-traveled to make a movie set in the 1600s in Flanders. They used a lot of references and did a lot of historic research. They went to the Flemish old masters, people like Bruegel and... Uh, use that uh, as guidelines for the costuming, all of which is spot-on accurate. Uh, the men in um, Flanders at the time wore really unflattering baggy pants with enormous asses in them, and the women wore bustles around the, their 
asses as well. The clothing was incredibly unflattering. And there is a scene where the Burgermeister's wife is getting dressed by her servants. And it just shows the kind of detail and the layering of the clothing at the time. And the fact that they pretty much had a pillow strapped to their ass under their dress. From our point of view, and probably from the point of view of people in 1935, the clothing is ludicrous. And this actually works in favour of the film, the ludicrousness of the Flemish clothing, because first time they see one of the soldiers, um, an outlier, a kind of messenger from the Duke turns up, and he's a swashbuckling Spaniard with an enormous hat with a feather in it, and um, a doublet, and wearing tights and boots. And it's pretty obvious he's carrying a package on him. And the women of the town seeing him as he goes to visit the Burgermeister, who is later going to pretend to be dead in his bed, um, they're quite impressed with the costuming of the Spaniard. And that's quite obvious in there. This guy um, leaves not a lot to the imagination when it comes to the trouser area, let's say. And that's that's part of the delight of it. Um, I kind of, one of the things I, I like in movies of a certain time, and movies of any time is, an acknowledgement and an appreciation of you know, female sexual desire. So often in movies, we see you know, men as an aggressor sexually and women as kind of a reluctant but increasingly you know, amorous participant. And there's that kind of, you know, toing and froing there, which is doesn't really sit with us well these days but in Carnival in Flanders the women are quite forthright in fact one of them a seamstress is um, let's just say romantically successful a number of times and that little plot point has a, a really nice twist as well um, it's just this movie has a lot of fun to it and it's Fader being very very playful parts of it as I said were filmed in Bruges and parts of it were in a studio reconstruction of a Flemish town of the time and it's just beautifully done it is in black and white of course and it's in academy ratio so it's not a widescreen technicolor spectacle by any means but the town is shown well. There's the fish sellers, and there are geese, little flocks of geese wandering around, and children and dogs and cats. And it's a beautifully textured and detailed world they create. A kind of little, nice little microcosm of a, a very insular and bourgeois little town where um, Bruegel is one of the characters. In fact, he is. Um, in love with the Burgermeister's daughter, but the Burgermeister wants to marry his daughter off to the butcher because they have an association, they're both businessmen, and Bruegel is a poor artist. But through the machinations of the Spanish occupation of the town, the fact that the Burgermeister is pretending to be dead in his bed, and the kind of rekindling of ardour by the Burgermeister's wife as she's courted by the Duke. Uh, she kind of turns around and starts supporting her daughter's urge to marry for love. And that kind of comes about through the twists and turns of the plot, and that's quite as sweet as well. The ingenues in that are, are kind of you know, charming, but the real star of the film is um, Francoise Rosset. Now, who was a very, very accomplished artist in a number of ways not only was she a fine actor but she was an opera singer a very accomplished pianist and she is something that we don't really remember as an important part of the theater but it definitely was at a certain time and 
probably to a certain extent remained so. She was what's known as a disieuse, which is in French is a teller. She's um, she, a kind of storyteller. Um, let's see. In the English-speaking states, it appears to date back to only the last decade of the 19th century, but in France it was a much earlier um, art. And basically it's you know, comic and dramatic monologues with a little bit of music in the background, and the music kind of informs the narrative. But basically it's it's kind of slightly formalised storytelling. If you want to look at kind of a, a, a more accessible disieuse, the comedy stuff that Joyce Grenfell did on record is considered to be Desiree's work. Um, so basically, you've got to be verbally witty and imaginative and have high levels of oral narrative skills. It's a, a very hard thing to do. It's not quite stand-up comedy. It's more creating a character, often comic, and inhabiting that character and... and doing it on stage and so Ms. Rosé was known as the Dizieuse and that shows in Carnival in Flanders there are a couple of scenes particularly when she's being kind of seduced and in turn seducing the Duke um, there's a lot of nice body language in there uh, even though of course it's subtitled and my French is quite rudimentary you, you can tell the emotion in her voice, the uncertainty, the kind of backing off, the going forward, the toing and froing between herself and the Duke. And it's very charmingly done. At the, at the end, she makes a speech to the town, which is quite good. And in making that speech, she supports her husband, which is kind of an interesting thing. Um, the Burgomaster, even though he's a buffoon, and a cowardly buffoon at that, the interesting thing is that the Burgomaster's wife does love and respect him at a certain level. And rather than kind of cuckolding him, she gives him the credit for what occurs, which is something that may piss off certain feminist viewers of the film. But I think it's done in a way that doesn't take power away from her. And that makes it kind of interesting for me. It makes it really, really interesting. The fact that the Burgomaster knows that she did all the work means she retains the power in it and even though publicly he's seen as the person who got the town a year free of taxes the fact that he knows it was her and he needs her support to function politically and socially in the town kind of um, keeps that power where it should be in a really interesting way uh, there are a number of minor characters in this um, movie that are a lot of fun as well there's a drunken priest who um, is the kind of father confessor to the Duke, and he's um, a lot of fun there. There's a man of small stature, a dwarf, who um, acts... You know, the people of the town think that he's a child, but he's actually 41 years old. In fact, that comes up as the night progresses and things get drunker and drunker, and uh, that's kind of a, a little fun aspect to it as well, where he's given his own character. And the comedy in the film about his stature is about the way other people misinterpret who he is rather than you know, it just being about the fact that he's short and dresses up like a fool. And and you know, there's a complexity to this movie that I really respect and, and I find joyous fun. It really... Um, this world feels very lived in, which is um, wonderful. It, Historically, it's as accurate as they could make it given the research they had available to them. 
and the world that uh, Fader creates is both a lot of fun and it kind of does comment on the political situation in Europe in the 1930s, while also, of course, being about female empowerment. The women of the town go to greet the soldiers as they arrive. They decide to handle it in their own way. The men are all hiding and, and scared shitless, but the women find their own courage and their own um, knowledge and their own skills in order to manage um, what might have otherwise been quite a nasty um, bivouac in the town over the 24 hours. And that's kind of cool as well. And kind of overwhelmingly throughout this film, we come back to the Burgermeister's wife, played by Francois Rosset, and she is a, a really great character. Um, Ms. Rosset had a career well into her 80s in cinema. She made over 100 movies. She was Fader's wife until his death in 1948 and then never married again and was buried alongside him when she finally died. But, um, yeah, she's a, a really commanding presence in the movie. Uh, and the arc of her character is really delightful. And one of the things this movie shows, too, is you can have a movie which is about um, kind of women, in a, in a lot, lot of ways, it's about women. It's also about the Duke. And the Duke himself is not as people think him to be. Uh, but you can have a movie that's about women, which isn't a chick flick. It isn't like a women's film, as they would have said in the 1950s. It's very much a, a film about people and about a community and, and about um, turning a threat to their world into a really good party which is always a nice thing itself. There are also little bits of work which are kind of very telling and interesting as well from a 21st century viewpoint. One of the soldiers isn't interested in the women. He's interested in um, needlepoint and sewing. And he finds a, a kindred spirit in one of the townspeople who has similar interests. It's slightly oblique from the gay viewpoint, but it still respects that there's a range of people in the Spanish soldiers and in the town itself and that these two guys find companionship, not necessarily sexual companionship, but they sit down and they do their crafts and their needlepoint and their knitting together and have a good time of the night themselves. Uh, and that's kind of heartening and it shows that homophobia wasn't universal in the past. It was something that was very much a part of the past for a lot of people, but there were little times and places, particularly when we're talking cinema and the theatre, when it didn't apply, where people were accepted for their sexuality. And Carnival in Flanders, in a small way, actually does that. And again, that's another reason to love the film. There are a lot of, um, particularly here in Australia, where there's a big debate at the moment during the election campaign about legalising marriage equality. For me, that little scene of companionship and friendship and acceptability, well, acceptance, sorry, by the movie makers rang to the current things that are going on in my country regarding um, human rights for LGBTI people. Now, like some of the films I, I do for the podcast, this one I picked up via torrent, but I have such a fondness for it now and such a high regard for the work of the people who made it that um, I'm buying a DVD copy of it just for my own collection 
because I think that I respect the people who made it enough to do that. Some movies, I'll download the torrent, talk about them on the podcast, and then delete the torrent. But this one is good enough to actually get an original copy of it, and I will be doing that in the next month and treasuring it as well. It's a movie I'll come back to because of what it says, how it is, the joy and fun of it, the wonderfulness of the acting in the film, and the um, just the, the fact that this movie is worth treasuring, and I will be getting it. It'll be sitting alongside um, my copy of Renoir's French Can Can, and my box set of Jacques Tati and, and all of those kind of non-English-speaking films, particularly French films. I've got a, a certain passion for French films. But the movies that I've discovered that weren't easily accessible to me and that in English-speaking circles aren't really well known but are incredibly joyous and overwhelmingly a lot of those films that I really like in that way are French. Of course... Fedor was Belgian, but he worked predominantly in France. And I think I'm going to steer my interest in that direction to a certain extent and kind of seek out some films that I might not otherwise look at uh, and kind of get a, a wider appreciation of French cinema. I know that there are other people that kind of steer towards other countries. My good friend Grant Watson, who was on the last Martian Driving podcast, he's got a real interest in Asian cinema. Korea, Japan, China, uh, and uh, Indonesia. He's He's got a, a big passion for those movies, particularly um, crime films of, from there. And I could kind of split my attention. And yeah, the, the, a lot of the films he's steered me towards are great, and all credit to them. But I think I'm going to kind of narrow my focus a little bit and try to do more kind of French cinema because I really find it an interesting thing. And I find contrasting it to the way Hollywood was at the time with the Hayes Code and the censorship and things like that is a very interesting thing to do. Now, Dolores Gray and Here's That Rainy Day, the song I played at the start of the talk about this movie. In the 1950s, in the mid-1950s, there was a musical version of Carnival in Flanders done on the Broadway stage. And excuse me while I bump things around and just grab my um, sheet on this one because I find this really interesting as well. 1953, it had a run on Broadway in 1953. It started Dolores Gray, who was in Kismet, who was also in um, It's Always Fair Weather. I've talked about her in the podcast before. Fantastic actress, great singer. Uh, she actually got a Tony Award for, as Best Actress in a Musical. The interesting thing about that is the musical ran six performances in 1953. And there was never a cast recording of it because it only ran six performances. The people who um, funded it didn't make a cent from it. The music was by Jimmy Van Heusen, who did a lot of songs later for Sinatra. The book of the movie was done by Preston Sturgis, the film director. The lyrics were by Johnny Burke, and it was based, of course, on Le Comesse Herotique, Carnival in Flanders. But it died in the arse you know, on Broadway and lasted six performances. And for years, nobody knew about the songs in it. Nobody knew anything about it for about a decade and a half. And then something interesting happened. One song from the movie, Here's That Rainy Day, evolved over a short period of time into a jazz standard. 
And the recording I played of Dolores Gray singing that was made in the 1970s, 20 years after Carnival in Flanders, the musical. And she was just stunned by the fact that this song she'd done in a, a musical was suddenly resurrected as a jazz standard as, and it kind of made it nice for her in that um, she enjoyed Carnival in Flanders. She thinks it's one of her, some of her best work and yet um, it was atrociously unsuccessful. If you go on YouTube, there's a little bit of the dance sequences from the stage musical of Carnival in Flanders on a very bad kinograph of the Ed Sullivan show, but it shows that the dancing in there, and the, the bit they have is the dancing Spaniards, is incredibly good. It's right up there with the best of MGM musicals. So if there are any time travellers listening to this podcast in the future... Go back to 1953 and do a recording of the stage production of Carnival in Flanders because I think from the little bits I've seen and from the song, I think it's a fantastic piece of work. Anyway, I'm going to take another break now and when I get back we're going to talk about a more male-centric movie um, which again talks to its times in a number of ways and that is the Oliver Stone-directed 1988 film Talk Radio starring Eric Bogosian. This country is in deep trouble, people. This country is rotten to the core and somebody better do something about it. I want you to take your hand out of that bowl of Fritos, throw away your National Enquirer and pick up the phone. Go ahead, pick it up, hold it up to your face and dial 555-TALK. Open your mouth and tell me what we're going to do about the mess this country's in. Talk radio. It's the last neighborhood in town. People just don't talk to each other anymore. Let's go to the first caller. Uh, Night talk, Agnes. Yeah. I love Lucy. Now, why don't they make more of them? Those shows are ancient, Agnes. Lucille Ball must be at least 105 years old. The rest of the cast is dead. <laughs> Barry Metrowitz is going to be picking up the show starting Monday night, link it to a national theme. We have a very special guest with us. Kent is the classic American youth, energetic and resourceful, spoiled, perverse, and disturbed. Would you say that's an accurate description, Kent? Barry, you should ask me if you want to have a guest on the show. Why? Because I'm the boss, Barry, that's why. All you have to do is just be nice, okay? Now, easy, Barry, you're part of the problem, you see. I don't care what you think! No one does! He's going down in flames, Dan. So what? You get the package I sent down to the station. See, if I were you, I'd have my pretty assistant give the police a call. Take the bomb squad about ten minutes to get down Bomb squad? Why, why, why should I call the bomb squad? Tell me something. I, I, I'm curious. How do you dial a phone with a straitjacket on? <laughs> more and more with this podcast, I'm kind of thinking about movies that have contemporary resonances, even though the format of the podcast is movies more than 20 years old. Increasingly over time, I'm finding that a lot of these movies have something to say about now, and that makes them of increased value for me. They're, they're more precious because of that. And Talk Radio, the 1998 Oliver Stone movie starring Eric Bogosian, based on a true 
event in Denver in 1984 has a lot of contemporary resonances right at this very moment in history. The movie is based on a Pulitzer-nominated play by Eric Bogosian and features Barry Champlain, a shock jock DJ working in the evening talkback radio in Dallas, Texas. And Barry is one of those shock jocks who talks over people. He's rude, abrupt, um, opinionated, and importantly, he's a Jew. Now, the people that come call into his show are a wide variety of people. Overwhelmingly, they're usually people from lower socioeconomic groups. They're uneducated people. They're people out on the edge. They're fringe dwellers. And as the movie progresses, increasingly, they are white supremacists with an agenda. Now, this isn't helped by Barry himself, who's kind of self-loathing and self-destructive. He's ruined his marriage by sleeping around and, and being a total asshole. He's on the brink of ruining his new relationship with his producer, Laura, played by Leslie Hope, and his ex-wife, uh, played by Ellen Green, her name's Ellen, in the movie. Um, he's The boss of the station is played by Alec Baldwin very well. Uh, this is kind of a Glengarry Glen Ross era Alec Baldwin playing Dan, the head of the um, the radio station. And his um, tech guy, the guy behind the console, is a guy called Stu, played by John C. McGinley. Um, so that that's a basic setup of things. Barry's caustic and nasty. He is, as the job description describes, hyperverbal and witty and funny at times. And he's got that ability to kind of pick at people and... Um, point out the flaws in their logic and this works very well for me he's quite successful at his business um but just at the point where his radio show is about to get national syndication through a corporate drone they have as a part of the team for a short time a guy played by john panko called deets um barry's kind of conflicted about that yes it's the next level of his career but on the other hand, he doesn't want corporate interference with what he does. He wants things to stay the way they are. Um, he and Dan have sort of an agreement, which phrased towards the end of the movie, that he'll do things his way. But um, because this is money for everybody, um, Dan puts his foot down at various times to tell Barry that he's basically not in charge of his own de destiny, that he's a fucking suit salesman with a big mouth. And then we get a flashback showing how Barry started his career. He was, in fact, a suit salesman um, who gets um, a gig being interviewed by a local uh, talk radio guy. He slowly takes things over and um, pisses off the talk radio guy, played by Robert Treble, and um, ends up with his own radio show, which goes on to be very successful over the next decade or so. We see the earlier years of Barry and Ellen's relationship and how good that was at the time and how his success and his self-destructive nature kind of fucked that up. And we see the evolution of the, the man who becomes Barry Champlain. Originally, his name is Barry Golden. Now, the original play um, that Eric Bogosian did, which also had uh, John C. Ginley in it as well, and another character who comes in, a young um, listener, who Barry gets on the show, played by Michael Wincott, who um, and this, that character's name's Kent, um, and he's just basically yeah one of those rock and roll morons, 
uh, modelling himself after his favourite bands. Looks like Motley Crue or somebody like that. He's not articulate. He's um, kind of yeah, grinning and laughing and stoned out of his fucking mind and, and just basically not the sort of person you'd want to be within 100 feet of. So both uh, McGinley and Wink had played that role in the play. So they came back in and they were quite, quite comfortable with it, even though by this stage uh, Michael Wincott's 31 and a little too old to play the role. He does put it across quite well, the kind of moronic, drug-fucked um, nihilism of Kent uh, is something that Barry is quite confronted by. When he sees it face-to-face, when he sees it in his own studio, in his own kingdom, he is quite confronted by it. Now, while this is going on, he also starts getting um, calls and parcels from white supremacists. Now, there's one parcel that um, one of the listeners is talking to him about as he's got the parcel sitting in front of him. It's a box about the size of a shoebox wrapped up in twine and the listener tells him it's a bomb and Barry being as self-destructive as he is opens the parcel live on air and it has a dead rat in it but the dead rat is not the scariest thing that's in the box I'm not going to tell you what the other thing is if you haven't seen the movie but the dead rat is not the scariest thing in the box and the tension and the drama ramp up till there is a, a conclusion to the movie. Now, this is based on the life of Mankell Allenberg, who was a um, radio sh- talk radio guy in Denver, Colorado, in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And um, I'm can't, do I give the spoiler? Do I not give the spoiler? Um, I, I won't give the spoiler. Basically, what happens to Barry in this movie is what happened to Alan Berg. And some of it is based on the life of Alan Berg. The backstory, the flashbacks of Barry's early life, being a suit salesman and his progression into his career as a talk radio guy are very strongly based on Alan Berg's life and uh, his relationship with his wife. Now, the talk radio they play is more contained and is for the most part the scenes that we see in the studio and Bogosian is electrifyingly good in that it's obviously one a role that he's played a lot he did it on stage so it was a very well rehearsed and very lived in performance and that kind of hyperverbal brilliant and um, at times cringe-makingly politically incorrect Barry Champlain that we get is just one of the great roles of the 1980s. Uh, Bogosian hasn't done anything since then or before then that was anywhere near as good as talk radio. Um, Not because he's not a fine actor, and he is indeed a fine actor, a fine monologuist, a very fine writer as well, and most recently um, a historian. Talk radio is a frightening movie for anybody in this age of media and social media because one of the aspects of it that I find quite frightening is the kind of people who call into Barry Champlain's radio show are the kind of people you find in hate groups now on Facebook and other social media. There's a consistency and uh, a dark ugliness to what the radio callers say to Barry Champlain that 
uh, is consistent with a lot of the things that are going on right now. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But first, I'm going to play a monologue by one of the listeners. And the other thing about this movie is the voice acting of the listeners in this film is singularly good. The characters, um, through what they say, demonstrate who they are. And there are times when it's incredibly confronting and terrifying movie. The day will come for you, Barry. And there will be a reckoning. An adding up and a totaling. Those who turned away will be turned upon. And I don't care what your story is, Barry. You are responsible and there will be no confusion at your trial. It will be short and necks will crack. The whips will strip your back bare to the bone and your children will cry for you as they are slaughtered before your eyes. You. The Jews will hang high over the streets. You will be buried in piles. You dig your own holes. I am here merely to tell you that the day will come. It will. Now, if that was a modern um, talk radio show, at least here in Australia, that person would never have got on air, and they, um, if they had got on air, they would have been cut very quickly. That level of hatred and kind of um, daydreaming about nastiness is something that, um, I actually did this a, a couple of days ago as a kind of side issue to um, a couple of rallies. Uh, there was a pro-Islamic and then anti-Islamic rally here in Melbourne, or a pro-refugee rally, where some white supremacists turned up. And so I clicked on their Facebook page and looked at it, and after I was sufficiently horrified, I stopped looking at it. Um, that, and just today, um, Kim Newman, the uh, horror writer has posted something on his Facebook. There is a um, trending Twitter hashtag called post-ref-racism where people in the UK, after the Brexit vote, are um, tweeting about the racism they're experiencing from white English people. And some of it is monstrous and it's getting worse. The Leave vote in the Brexit where the hash, you know, the, the buzzwords that were sprouted by certain people, including Nigel Farage of UKIP, was take our country back and you know, uh, stop the immigrants and all that kind of thing. So there's an explicitly and implicitly racist um, aspect to the Brexit. And there's a lot more people who are fronting people who are not Anglo-Saxon on the streets of England. And giving them a lot of shit. Um, and that happens here in Australia as well. There's a culture war going on that you'd have to be a fucking idiot not to notice. And you'd have to be an even more of a fucking idiot not to be scared by. Even though numerically these people aren't a majority in any way, shape or form. Neither were the Nazis. And one of the things that I found resonated for me in watching talk radio was that this was social media before social media existed. 
the talk radio format and that kind of antagonism of ideas that you get in the format of Barry Champlain's night talk radio show is something that's played out on a larger scale now. And while I'm an enormous fan of social media, I think it's a power for good in the world for the most part. It's also um, got the ability to empower people who have views and have beliefs that are dangerous to other human beings. And that kind of resonance that I found watching Oliver Stone's movie is quite alarming and disturbing and very, very of this moment as much as it was in 1988 and indeed in 1984 when Allenberg, and I'm going to say it, was killed by um, a white supremacist group. Movies like this are important. Movies like this matter. Movies like this should be seen even when they're uncomfortable because while um, Hollywood for a long time and to a certain degree of credit was about the ennobling of human beings to showing the best things, the Sergeant Yorks and the To Kill a Mockingbirds and all of those movies that show the positive side of courage and bravery and truth and valour. There's as much importance in showing the dark side of things and showing what we're fighting as there is in showing our side of it. Horrible though it is, terrifying though it is, nauseating though it may be we need to have movies like talk radio that address these kind of issues and show us that people on our side and one of the things about Barry Champlain is he's uh, underneath it a lefty even though he's politically incorrect and at times slightly homophobic and the rest of it he's still on the side of the angels to a certain extent he visited Dachau, for instance, and he revels in giving shit to racists on his show. Ultimately, though it's part of his self-destructive pattern to be that obvious in it, to be that blatant and to be as confrontational as he was, but people shouldn't be killed for being confrontational. Yes, they can be challenged, and ideas should be challenged if they're wrong, and if you disagree with them, ideas should be challenged, but... Ad hominem attacks are always weak arguments. They're always used when people don't have a way of attacking your ideas that will attack you as a person. And that ad hominem attack kind of thing is ultimately typified and taken to an extreme by what happens to Barry Champlain in talk radio. This movie does show us what we're fighting. And even if we only do it through our own deeds and actions in our day-to-day lives, we're still fighting a culture war. We're still fighting an unthinking and sadistic tribalism that's part of the human makeup, it's part of human nature, and is part of, unfortunately, who we are. And it's a part of us that we need to combat in ourselves and in our lives. And talk radio makes that argument that even though Barry Champlain is a flawed and nasty and selfish and self-destructive man he's not wrong in fighting these people and in um, challenging their ideas he's not wrong he's just insufficiently careful he doesn't take care of himself that self-destructiveness manifests in that disregard for his own safety opening a parcel live on air 
um, not looking after taking necessary precautions when threats have been made to him. He may well take the threat seriously to some level. There's a little bit of ambiguity about that. But ultimately, he doesn't care enough about himself to be careful. And that doesn't mean that people, of course, should kill him. But it just means that it enables the any of this movie to occur. And that's uh, one of the grace notes of this movie. Even though we kind of like Barry at the start, and we like the fact that he is witty and sharp and arch and bitchy and nasty at times. We know ultimately that he is at some level on the side of the angels. He's just not on his own side. He's just not on the side of Barry Champlain. And uh, that's demonstrated most ably when he reaches out to his ex-wife, Ellen, who um, comes back from Chicago and uh, spends some time in town to look after him. And then his self-destructive streak manifests as well. Um, the character is, is beautifully laid and complex, and indeed all of the characters are more so um, people like Ellen, played by Ellen Green, who is a monstrously underrated actor. Uh, she is very, very good and very complex. Uh, also, uh, Laura, Leslie Hope's character, who kind of hates herself for having the affair with Barry, but likes him and wants the best for him, even though he sometimes treats her badly. Not that he's physically violent, but he just disregards her feelings. He's got that kind of male entitlement that was so much a part of previous decades before our own, the 1980s in particular, uh, with successful men. And I, I had a little bit to do with several successful men in the 1970s and 1980s, tangentially. And I saw the kind of privilege they had that didn't strike me as being earned. They uh, a couple of times they come into companies where I worked and they'd get things for free because of who they were rather than um, having earned it and that always pissed me off particularly because I was working my guts out at the time in factories but nonetheless Talk Radio is uh, such an important film of the 1980s it talked to the darker side of the, the time and it talks to the darker side of our time now it talks to the threats that we face and the challenges and the wrong-headed bitter twisted and ugly um, ideologies that make our world less than it should and could be um, I like this film a lot I really really like it a lot I think it's an important film I think it's a movie that needs revisiting in our current times uh, I'm not a pessimist about the future of the human race. I just think that we're going to have to go over a lot of rocky roads before we get to where we're going. And movies like this remind us of the, the threats that we face and the possibility of failure. And I just love it for that reason. Uh, it's, it's a really important film. I think it's one of Oliver Stone's best. There are a lot of flashier Oliver Stone movies that get a lot more love than talk radio does. But the way he turns that microcosm of the radio station and the radio studio into an arena for the combat of ideas is brilliantly done. I think it's a really well-made film. And um, I think Boghossian is fantastic in it. Now, I mentioned earlier that Eric Boghossian's a historian now. He's done a really interesting book. Uh, he is of Armenian heritage, and some of his um, family members were involved in something called Operation Nemesis. Now, he wrote a book about this. Operation Nemesis is a secret plot that avenged the Armenian genocide, which was a history of it. 
Um, basically, after the Armenian Genocide, which took place 100 years ago, and it has still not been recognised by the countries who committed it, um, a group of Armenian assassins set out to avenge the deaths of one and a half million victims by killing the people in charge of the Armenian Genocide. And they successfully did it all across Europe. They went across Europe and killed everybody involved in the Armenian Genocide. Uh, they did it in Georgia, in Germany, in Istanbul, in Rome, in Berlin, and um, in Tiflis in, in Soviet Georgia. Basically, this was a, a conspiracy to avenge, and it happened. Uh, all up, let's see, two, four, six, eight men who were responsible for the Armenian Genocide ended up being assassinated by the families of their victims. It's a fantastic story, and I'm really going to have to pick up a copy of Eric Bogosian's book because it sounds really fantastic. If you go to Mark Maron's WTF podcast, there's a really good interview with Eric Bogosian where he also talks about um, Operation Nemesis and also about his career and his life. Uh, it's really well done, Ben. Of course, it's Mark Maron's podcast, so it's brilliantly done. And um, Bogosian seems to be a man who's very comfortable with his life he admits his flaws in the past but he's at a good place in his life and he's now being well respected for his scholarship as much as he was in earlier decades for his artistic works and all strength to Bogosian for that I, I mean I like him as an actor I love his writing I'll have a book of his monologues here in the man cave which even just read are still fucking brilliant but anyway that's about it this time around. Um, I've got two more people to add to the credits for the Patreon supporters. Stephen Sullivan, stephendsullivan.com. Um, <laughs> I keep forgetting to put Steve on the list in that end credit sequence. I don't know how he fell off. I've added him to the list now. When I re-record it, it's all going to be there and in place. Steve is our director of monster effects. Right off the bat, I'm going to say that. The other person is our friend Richard, um, who used to be Richard from Wichita, but is now lo no longer in Wichita. And he has now contributed to uh, the podcast through the Patreon campaign. And Rich is our transportation co-captain. So uh, I'll play the rest of the credits now, but I really wanted to highlight those two guys because they've been supporters of the podcast for a long time. And I'm going to get Steve Sullivan on at one stage as well. He and I keep promising to do that. Um, I haven't fulfilled the promise yet, but he's definitely going to be on. And Rich also suggested um, a French film director that I'm looking into for a future podcast. He wants me to do one of his movies. I may even do two if I can find them. But anyway, here are the credits. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. Fight the battles you have to fight. Remember, the standard that you walk past is the standard you accept. Don't let the bastards drag you down and fight the good fight. Um, watch really bad movies. Watch really good movies. Watch movies with people you love. Watch them by yourselves. Anyway, I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. Next week with the Martian Drive-In podcast. And here are the rest of the credits done in the style of movie credits. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, 
Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. 